Hello, and welcome back to Tell Me About It, the show where we commiserate about the bloopers of our lives, where we collectively remind ourselves that we're never alone in any struggle, and that yes, even the women we think are perfect, 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 also have lives that are far from. I'm your host, Jade Iovine, and as always, I just want to thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Okay, slight confession, I'm moving two blocks away. Like, I think on Google Maps, it literally says, like, one-minute drive. But you know what? I've learned. If you're moving one minute away or five miles away or 50 miles away, moving's the same. It's the same shit. It sucks just as much. And, like, it's all the little things about moving that piss me off. Like, I keep looking at this half-full bottle of milk in my fridge. And every time I open my fridge, I think to myself, are you coming with or is this where our story ends? You know? Like, do you bring those things with you? Who knows? I'm such a nightmare. Like, you guys, oh, my God. Poor Dylan. Like, Dylan is a saint for dealing with me. Poor guy. I have cried three times in the past week. So I'm only going to count the past week because, you know, anything before that is irrelevant. I've cried three times in the past week. The most recent time that I cried was, I think, on Saturday. And it was when we decided to try to lift our mattress off our bed frame. And holy shit, the amount of unmentionable items that I can say that have accumulated under my bed frame that are just like laying in the crack of my bed and this gray disgusting dust that is just like all between the cracks of my bed every crack I mean if you need a complex if you just want to like give yourself some self-loathing like maybe you don't have enough lately try to pick up the mattress of your bed because I've never felt worse about myself I mean, my confidence has never taken such a blow. I feel like the most disgusting hobbit. Like, I just feel like, how did I let this happen? How have I slept in this filth? I just cried from shame, from sheer shame. I was just mortified. People are freaks because people offer to help you move all the time, like as if they actually mean it. And spoiler alert, they don't. So they make you lose your faith in humanity as if your whole life isn't already falling apart. So it's just been a journey, and it's going to continue to be a journey, and I don't know if I'll make it through, but I just had to vent to you guys for, you know, a quick few seconds to just start off this episode nice and fresh. So if you have any moving stories or nightmarish stories that can make me feel better about my own life, I would love that. If you have any tips and tricks or want to help me move, no, I'm kidding, just tell me. Call me on our number. It's in the episode notes and in the link in my bio. Call me or text me because I need to know how anyone else moves. I'm going to have a fucking breakdown with this move. So period, end of story, moving is fucking hard. You know what else is hard? Dating is hard, relationships are hard, and breakups are hard. I personally find dealing with other individuals inherently challenging at best, but when you mix trauma and psychology and your heart gets involved, it's obviously a whole other ballgame. Today's episode is a conversation I had with Amy Chan, who I'll tell you more about in a minute. But essentially, she's a love, lust, relationship, heart guru, and breakup expert. You might want to get out a pen and paper or your notes app while listening to this episode because trust me, trust me, trust me, you're going to want to write a lot of this stuff down. 
I feel like I got a full college education on relationships and why we do the things we do and heartbreak just from this one hour episode of talking to her. She explained it all so simply and she fully believes that all issues relating to relationships or heartbreak can actually be traced back to science and chemicals in our brain from patterns that we learned in childhood, of course. So I interrogated poor Amy about several topics, one of them being breakups. We talked about what's actually happening in our brains when a relationship ends, what the best tools are to get over someone. We talked about Amy's breakup rules, and we talked about my favorite topic of debate, what is actually more painful, being broken up with or breaking up with someone. I asked her all about relationships, how to effectively fight with your significant other, how to spice up your sex life if you're in a long-term relationship, and the different types of attachment styles that may be fucking us up. I had to ask her everything about dating, why we're attracted to the people that could hurt us in the same way or similar way we were hurt in childhood, why it's easier for some people to have casual sex than it is for others, the psychological reasons we accept just breadcrumbs or the bare minimum from someone that won't commit to us, and of course, why people ghost. Amy Chan has been called a relationship expert whose work is like that of a scientific Carrie Bradshaw. She's the founder of Renew Breakup Bootcamp, a retreat that takes a scientific and spiritual approach to heal the heart. She is also editor-in-chief of Heart Hackers Club, an online magazine that focuses on the psychology behind love, lust, and desire. She's been featured in Good Morning America, Vogue, Glamour, Nightline, and the front page of the New York Times. Her book, Breakup Bootcamp, The Science of Rewiring Your Heart, is available now. Amy is the godmother we all so desperately need, and I can't wait for you to hear all the juicy tips and tricks she shared. It's like fitting a year of therapy in an hour episode, and I'm so damn excited to hear what you think. Here is Amy Chan. Hi, Amy. Welcome on the show. Hello. I'm so glad you're here. Oh my God. I feel like, you know, I do so much research on, you know, each of my guests before they come on and not to throw any shade towards my other guests, but I had by far the most fun (laughs) researching this episode. Oh my God, I learned so much from like your Twitter, from your Instagram, just like those little blurbs that you do. I mean, so we were talking about this before. You are a heart hacker. Your title is Chief Heart Hacker, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I study all things love. Let's start with breakups because breakups are up 15% since the pandemic. Is that true? Yeah. So in Canada, it's been up in 15%. In America, they don't have a breakup rate, but it's been talked about around 34% increase in filings for divorce. Uh, And it's expected to go higher just because a lot of places have been on lockdown. So you are able to actually file. So yeah, overall, uh, breakups and separations have been on the rise during the pandemic. Wow. How many years have you been studying breakups and love and relationships? I've been a relationship columnist for 12 years and I've been running breakup bootcamp for five. I know you had one specific breakup that was kind of the catalyst to get you started in this whole world. Can you kind of tell us about that? Yeah. So I was in a relationship and thought that I met the one Mm -hmm. and I thought I was living the dream. And to me back then, living the dream meant date, get married, have kids and live happily forever after. And, um, we were together for about two years and I, you know, 
I had lost my job and then I moved in with him and then I took a bunch of my savings and I, you know, took him to Europe. And then upon coming home, there was infidelity. Mm. And when I found out, I completely broke apart and I spiraled into depression. I stopped eating. I lost 20 pounds in less than a month. And I had friends have to like watch me eat because I was withering away. I had panic attacks. I had thoughts of suicide. It was a really dark place. And absolutely because I've been an overachiever my whole life, Mm -hmm. there was this extra layer of shame I dealt with because I'm like, well, why can't I just get over this? Why Mm -hmm. am I so weak? Why is nothing I'm doing working? Mm -hmm. And it was really, really dark for me. Right. Do you think there was some embarrassment there that like, because you're an overachiever and perfectionist that you had to then turn around and be like, oops, I was wrong. Like, turns out I'm not going to spend the rest of my life with this guy. Was there shame around that? There was shame around that. Yeah. And then also because I was a relationship columnist at the time, I was writing for the Vancouver newspaper and seen as a relationship expert. And I'm going through this thing. And so, and I I was so ashamed and I didn't want my mom to feel my grief. So I didn't let Mm -hmm. her know. And I didn't go home. Uh, I didn't have anywhere to live afterwards. So I stayed at friends' homes. I jumped to six different places within three months, just friends letting me use their homes because I couldn't get back on my feet. Yeah, of course. So I think everything at once, you know, not having a job and losing my identity around that, not having the relationship and not only mourning the relationship and my best friend that I thought I knew, but I was now mourning the the future that I would never have. This future I thought I was so for sure, this is set. It just crumbled before my eyes. And so it was just triple whammy of, of grief. Yeah, I'll say. So you were kind of married to the future that you thought you'd have with this person, not necessarily married to the person, but you had all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. Totally. Yeah. So did you ever struggle with mental health issues like depression and anxiety and panic disorder before the breakup? No, I've had an anxious attachment style and we can get into Mm -hmm. that a bit more, Uh, a fear of abandonment and rejection, Mm -hmm. but it never came out in terms of depression or anxiety Mm. attacks or anything like that. Wow. So that was all new during this breakup. Yeah. Holy shit. (laughs) So I want to get into all of that, you know, but specific to you, how long did it take you to get over it, quote unquote, you know, to reach a place of peace after that breakup? Yeah. So I would say the healing came in a few different stages. Mm -hmm. There was the, the emotional intensity where it was so bad. And really I could have gone in any direction when I was having destructive thoughts, revenge fantasies, all that stuff. I think that took around two to three months for that to start to settle. Um, the extreme swings in emotions and complete darkness that followed me everywhere. The next stage was when I started to put myself back together. I got a job. I started to see friends again and there was some normalcy, but I was still really angry and resentful. And so that kind of stayed around with me. And then I think the, the last stage, and this was in the two year mark was I was over it. I was, you know, even dating other people, but there was still this part of me that was 
bitter and Mm. just sour from the injustice of it all. And I would say fully for me to really let go and be at a place of peace and acceptance was two and a half years. But I am happy to say we are very good friends today. I actually saw him at a coffee shop earlier. Oh my God. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Okay. So what is really happening in our our brains scientifically when we go through a breakup? Yeah, that's a great question because the thing people always say after breakup is, I feel like I'm going crazy. And it's not that you're going crazy. It's that you're actually going through a process on a biological level. So when you are falling in love in the lust phase, you are filled with all these chemicals, right? Namely dopamine. Dopamine is a molecule of more. Uh, It's what you get when you have chocolate, when you have sex, when you think about your relationship or your vacation. um, And it feels amazing. Now, all of these chemicals are really great to cause the momentum for a couple to connect and bond. But when you break up, it's so same chemicals, but in reverse. So you go into withdrawal and they've actually done studies on people who are newly separated and they scanned their brains and they saw that the same part of the brain was activated as a drug user feeding for their next fix. Wow. So you can really like an experience very similar to you being in a drug withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I, you know, I half joke that after a breakup, you need to think about your ex as if they're your drug dealer. And you, there is going to be temptation. There is going to be withdrawal. There is going to be this, oh my gosh, I'm going crazy. I, I, you know, I just need to like check their social media one more time. Right. Um, But that is all just a chemical process and it will eventually start to settle down when you give it space and time on a cognitive level, you go, oh yeah, we're broken up. I get that. But on your body is in a state of shock. It's like, what the hell's going on? Get get those dopamines, get those feel-good chemicals, get the oxytocin. Where the hell is it? And it's right. going to nudge you and say, well, dopamine is the motivation molecule. It mm-hmm. encourage you, encourages you to get the reward. So mm-hmm. even though it's against you know, all of your logic, it's going to tell you your body's going to feel that you should get more of whatever it is that you're craving. Interesting. So it's kind of less about the person even and more about the physical withdrawal. Totally. Do you think that breakups are more akin to grief or addiction psychologically? Mm, That's a great question. I think it really depends. I think there are some people who struggle with love addiction and they don't even know it. And they are um, so chemically hooked on the highs and extreme and intensity um, that they they withdraw in a very similar way to you know a drug user and then there are people who they've been married for 20 years and and built a family and a life together and that ending of that relationship is such a loss it's a loss of a, a big part of them and they do go through a very similar process as those grieving that's what a lot of them say um so i think it depends on your situation right So, but the rules are the same for whether you feel like it's an addiction withdrawal or whether you feel like it's grief, you know, the, your breakup rules are pretty much the same. So can you kind of go over what are the major do's and don'ts? Let's start with don'ts of a breakup. 
Yeah. I think the first thing is don't judge your emotions as good or bad. Mm. You are going to go through the different stages of separation. There's research says there's six. I've actually added one. So I say there's seven stages and you, there's no easy way out. You need to go through it. So it starts with shock. Then it goes to denial, depression, anger. Uh, and then it goes into bargaining, which is a kind of a relapse and you kind of deny, go back into denial. And then there's another stage, which I add, which is accountability. When you start to see your part in the mm. relationships ups and downs and ending, and it's not all about blaming the ex anymore. And then that takes you to the next stage, which is acceptance. And this is when you really accept your reality and you're no longer in fantasy land of revenge plots or, oh, if only I did, you know, they do this to give me closure or maybe I'll get them back. You accept the reality and you start focusing your energy on moving forward on yourself versus the conversation constantly being about the other person. Now, this doesn't mean that you're rid of pain and the sadness. It just means that you've reached this point where you start to build the 2.0 version of you. And like I mentioned, there's no magic pill that's going to make you skip through it a lot of people tend to um, try to avoid or suppress the emotions and the pain and they go and they date right away or they have sex with a ton of people. And what I constantly see over and over again is that it catches up to them. That's when the baggage happens. It's not processed. The pain and the emotions, they need air to breathe and they just come back out in your next relationship or in regret or five years down the road. So you either do the work now and deal with it now, or you're going to deal with another version of it when it's like poison and it's seeped through all parts of you and you're going to have to deal with it later. Right. So you're just postponing the pain essentially. Yeah, very well put. So I think that's important to know of not judging that emotional experience because all of those stages are a part of the healing journey. You can't just be like, oh, I don't want to feel sad. And, and that that actually the sadness is there for a reason. The anger is there for a reason. It's teaching you things. And so um, I would say the next thing is do not feed your emotional monster. So there is a difference between processing your emotions and feeding the emotional monster. Um, I also call it emotional cutting. And mm -hmm. so, you know, uh, feeling... I'm familiar. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we all are, right? Like, yeah. I know for me, uh, feeding my emotional monster was me playing Coldplay, Fix You, on repeat, or, oh. you know, Taylor Swift, oh. on repeat. Oh my God, yes. That'll get to me even if I'm not going through anything, you know? Exactly. Yes. It, it's in your body posture. It is watching romantic movies that you know it's going to make you feel sad. It's doing more that will make that emotion bigger and stick around even longer. And we know we're doing it, but for some reason, like, oh, you know, we'll just do it a bit more. So that's feeding your emotional monster. Right. Um, so you don't want to do that. No. And another huge one is do not vilify your ex because the reality is that's a hard one. Even though we <laughs> want to get together with our friends, right. Over yeah. wine and everyone takes turns calling the, what a narcissist, what a sociopath. Right. That's um, me. I'm that friend. <laughs> I'm, I'm calling out all their personality disorders. Yes, and we want to be there for our friends. But the thing is, this just adds to the emotional charge. And the reality is, if you are vilifying your ex, blaming your ex, psychoanalyzing your ex, you're still in a relationship with your ex. Oh, yes. I love that. 
Yeah. So it's actually keeping you hooked. And sometimes we do that because we hold on to the pain as our last attempt of holding on to the relationship. That's the last part we've got left Mm. is that pain. So we keep feeding it. And I think this brings me to the last one, which is do not stalk their social media. Oh, that's hard. I was hoping you'd leave that out. So tell me about that. I know that you have like, first of all, a 60 day rule, right? Like you're not supposed to, you're supposed to block their number, block them on social media. What if you're afraid of it looking catty? Yeah. And so the way you do it doesn't have to be in this mean, aggressive way. Mm -hmm. You can even let the person know like, Hey, this time I need to focus on my own self-care and I'm going to take a break from all communications and social media. Um, Please respect my boundary. I don't want to have any communication. I'm going to do this for 60 days. If I feel like I can open it up again, I'll contact you, but please respect, um, respect my limits. So 60 days of like cold turkey, no talking. Yeah. And the reason why is when you're in a relationship with someone, you have neural pathways that have been wired together. Every time you're having breakfast, hugging, kissing, watching Netflix together, those neural pathways are strengthening. After you break up, if you keep doing those things, such as going down memory lane, uh, looking at their social media, creating your Finsta so you could check out their stories. <laughs> That's only strengthening those old neural pathways and it doesn't allow them to prune away. So, so can you explain pruning? Yeah. So um, think of it like there's um, a, a, a highway, okay? There's a road, right? And in your and when you're in that relationship, that road, you keep traveling down it and it just becomes a super highway. After a breakup, your brain wants to go onto that super highway, but you're like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, instead of looking at their social media, I'm going to go on a walk with my friend Jade. We're going to go and exercise together. Then you create a new path, but that path has branches on it. You know, it's like a little hard to walk, but every single time you keep going onto this new path, that old super highway starts to close. There's weeds, there's branches. And then what happens is eventually that super highway doesn't, mm-hmm. is no longer a super highway. It becomes this kind of dirt road. That's kind of hard to access. And this other road that you've carved out over and over again, walks with Jade, going to yoga retreats, meditation, whatever it is, that yes. becomes a super highway. And so you- How will- long does it take? I'm like, how long does it take <laughs> for those neuropathways to, to prune? There's been, you know, there's such a, there's been different studies that show, I would say one I keep seeing is around 120 days. Okay. I'll take that. Do it in chunks because okay. if I was to say right now, go for six months, no contact, blah, blah, blah. That might be so overwhelming that you're like, Definitely. I can't, absolutely, I'm just going to fail. But if right. you can do it, okay, I can do 30 days. After 30 days, hey, you know what? I can do another 30 days. Okay. I think that makes it a little bit more accessible and makes that goal a little bit more realistic. Okay. Yeah, I want to get into more healing modalities, like some of your other favorites. But I like what you talk about, you know, holding on to the story even after you've let go of the person. Like, so you can get over someone, right? but still be married to the narrative of like, you know, when you go to a party and you get drunk and you tell this girl that you've never met, like the whole story two years after you broke up. Like, can you tell me a little bit about that? That's exactly what I did. 
<laughs> anyone who would just listen, everyone. like, just thank everyone. you. I'll, I'll, yes. just, I'll just tell you, like, yes. just recruiting people onto my side. And, and yes, we can actually build an identity out of this story. And I know for me, for two and a half years, it was a story that I was the victim and this person did this to me and you should be loyal to me and also think that they're an asshole. Mm. And that was this identity that I kind of got really comfortable with and it wasn't serving me. It was keeping me attached and it was actually stopping me from moving forward. And so I think that we need to be so careful of the stories that we believe because they shape our reality. And it is so important that we look at these stories and ask ourselves, is this based in fact or fiction? Are there assumptions here? There's an exercise in my book. I talk about cognitive distortions, also known as thinking traps. Human beings are very privy to these different thinking traps. These are our brain's way of interpreting things and creating stories that are actually not true. And they add to anxiety and stress and depression. I was going to say, it sounds like anxiety. Yeah. yeah. And and there's a lot of different thinking traps that we do from yeah. personalization, uh, such as taking a rejection and being like, oh my gosh, it must be because I'm not, you know, skinny, pretty, young enough, whatever it is. Right. Or generalization. You were cheated on once. And so you're like, everyone's going to cheat on me. I'll, or black and white thinking when you're like, use words like all or always or never. I'll never find love again. No mm. one's going to love me the way that this person did. And mm. these all shape our stories and our narratives. And there's this thing called confirmation bias. And that is what we have an idea or we have a belief. We will actually go into the world and find evidence to prove that this belief is true, whether that belief is helpful or not helpful. Mm-hmm. And so we have to update our stories and our beliefs and ask ourselves, is this story serving me? Right. And that kind of reminds me of talking about just the emotional aspect of it. How long does it take for an emotion to pass through you? And then the rest is just the stories you attach, right? It's something like 90 seconds, right? 90 seconds. So 90 seconds is when you feel the feeling It reaches its chemical peak and it moves through your body. But what keeps that emotion sticking around for hours, days, years is a story that we attach. I'll give you an example. This used to happen all the time to me when I was dating. I liked someone, I would text and I didn't hear back. And an hour would go by, be like, oh, okay. Three hours would go by and then it's like, oh, they must not be into me. Oh my gosh, I'm that girl who's just like being, you know, taken in for advantage of, oh my gosh, right? (laughs) I'm proud of you for not going into what I usually tell my friends. Their grandmother probably died. You know what I mean? I always say like, they're probably in the hospital. They're probably in a ditch somewhere. That's why they didn't respond to you. Well, that's actually probably healthier than taking it into this personalization and creating these stories and making assumptions and working yourself up into some anxiety or anger spiral um, and then reacting from that place. If I just would be like, oh, I feel a, you know, a little sense of rejection. I, oh, I feel a bit sad that I hear back right away. Okay, I'm going to let the motion pass through me. I'm going to you know, now redirect my focus, but instead building stories and then calling a friend like, oh my gosh, look at this text. What does it mean? Friend goes, what an <laughs> asshole. Right? Are we what not supposed to do, do? that? <laughs> <laughs> Are we not supposed to do that? Because I do that all the time. So when you say that it's not a breakup, it's recycled pain, what does that mean? Yeah. So 
I say that it's never just about the ex. It's recycled okay. pain because everyone who comes through breakup boot camp, they come in in the beginning thinking, oh my gosh, this is about my, my ex-boyfriend, my ex-girlfriend, my ex-wife, whatever it is. And at the end of the retreat, they recognize like, oh, this is about me. This is about my patterns, why I chose this person in the first place, why I stayed. And what's my ex's name again? And, and you almost laugh at it because- we will continuously choose people who can wound us in a very similar way as how we're wounded as children. We repeat the emotional experiences over and over again, just with different people. And so if you have a pattern or a history of relationships that you know, haven't been healthy or toxic, um, that's a signal that you might be having this recycled pain repeat over and over again. So I've heard you talk about something called a chemistry compass. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. So I've termed this thing called the chemistry compass, which is our internal GPS that points us into the direction of who we're drawn to and who we're repulsed by. Now, if you didn't have a healthy model of what love looks like and feels like growing up, this can cause your chemistry compass to break. <laughs> And the reason being is human beings, we are drawn to what's familiar. It's the same across the board when it comes to food, to music, and our romantic partners. Okay. And so while the people might look very different, they might, uh, you know, one might be a DJ, one might be an entrepreneur, or one might have dark hair, one might have light hair. The emotional experience is usually very similar. Interesting. And so if this has been your history of just choosing the wrong people, I hear this a lot. Oh, I, you know, I always say unavailable people. Um, that's a signal that your chemistry compass might be broken. And I, I really like to discern and differentiate. It's your chemistry compass that's broken. It's not you as a human right. being. You are not broken. So you can fix your chemistry compass. Exactly. Okay, good. And, and part of that is just choosing different people. Right. Um, so much of that work is helping us get to a place where we are drawn to people who are healthy and secure, and we don't sabotage those relationships or dismiss people who can love you in a very secure, stable way. Yeah. Because that's interesting because you think of attraction to be, you know, somewhat physical or biological. So it's almost hard to believe or imagine that your taste can change oh, or that you yeah. can actually do the work to make that change. I want to ask you more about breakups. Mm. So how long do you think it actually takes to get over someone? I know you said two and a half years was kind of like your experience. Do you think that it has anything to do with the length of the relationship, like the duration of the relationship? So yeah, I'll give you one number because people always want to know the number. The studies show that six to eight weeks is when the emotional intensity starts to subside. Okay. So that's when I'm talking about all that kind of chemical stuff. Now, this is if you are talking to each other, you're not sleeping together anymore. I don't really think the beginning starts until you've kind of cut off that contact. I've worked with someone who they were broken up for a year, but you know, they were still contacting each other. And I was like, oh, no, 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 you're still in the relationship. Your work uh -huh. starts right now today when you're committed to cutting them off. So, so six to eight weeks is the emotional intensity number. Now, after that, it really depends on your situation. It's going to depend on your attachment style. Those who have an anxious attachment style, which are more um, fearful of abandonment and rejection are going to take breakups a lot harder uh, than someone who has, say, an avoidant attachment style who tend to suppress their emotions. 
Um, and it also depends on the intensity of the relationship, the duration of the relationship. Uh, for some people, I've had, uh, you know, someone who was married for 20 years and then get into a relationship with someone only for three months. And that three month relationship that was hot and cold and the, the person love bombed her and then like left and betrayed her, that hurt more than the mm. 20 year old relationship that ended in divorce. Interesting. Why do you think that is? Uh, I believe in some of these cases, it is they go to a partner where they can feel alive again. Uh. And they're now feeling these intense emotions that they haven't felt for 10, 20, 30 years. And suddenly they feel alive. And then that person does something and they're gone or they leave them. And they're like, oh my gosh, it's this person. That's why I felt alive. And uh. I don't have them anymore. And now I feel like I'm dead. I feel like I'm dull again. God, I'm learning so much from you. I'm like, I need to take notes. I love this so much. So how long is your retreat? Can you tell us a little bit about the Renew Retreat? Yeah, so I have a breakup bootcamp that's four days long. And we bring in 13 different experts from psychologists, behavioral scientists, anxiety coaches, sex educators. We even bring in a dominatrix who has a PhD from Berkeley. I love and it. Yes, oh my God. She teaches on the psychology of power dynamics uh, because... Most of the people that come, even though they're successful and, you know, high achieving people, they tend to have a similar pattern of losing their power in the relationships or after the relationships. We really dig into the psychology behind why that happens. Right. So like, who is it for? It's only for women and it's for people who have gone through a breakup, a divorce, or are just single and want to understand their patterns. Now, this is really a boot camp to help you shift subconscious beliefs and patterns that are blocking you from creating the life and love that you want. But mm. breakups are often the catalyst that cause someone to finally say, oh my gosh, I need to do something. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of people, and you might have some friends who are in a relationship that they're not happy with, but it's not so terrible, but it's also not that good, but they mm. just stay in it because yes. uh, complacency is our, our greatest enemy. It'll keep us stagnant. And so a breakup is actually a really great catalyst for someone to, they're in so much pain usually that like, I, I'm not going to go back to that. I need to do something different. Right. Oh my God. Okay. That's so true. So you say that closure is an inside job. What does that mean? Because this, I think we need to just put on every billboard in Los Angeles, like all across the country, because it's so true. People get so caught up looking for closure. And it's like this mythical creature, like it's like the Loch Ness Monster. Like what is closure? You know, it's like, I don't understand why people are so addicted to closure, but I feel like it's just maybe another exposure to the ex that they miss. So they like, like it. But so you just think that closure begins and ends with you, right? Yeah. So closure, like hunting for closure is like a quest. And I think sometimes it could cause someone to transfer their obsession about their ex into this journey of like, oh my gosh, I just need to hunt and, you know, get this closure. I did this. I became, you know, a CIA agent pretty much of like trying to understand like the psychology and science of infidelity and like all of these things and hoping that if I could get a clue or one more apology or one more explanation, it would finally make me feel this peace. But 
it did no matter what I found out, no matter how many times he apologized, it didn't do that. And I couldn't understand why. So I was like, no, 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 I just need more of something. And it wasn't until I now look back and working with all these different experts is it's not closure you're looking for. It is a sense of peace. And no one can give you that sense of peace. They just can't. It comes from a series of steps, of um, of feeling the pain, of going through the emotions. As we call it, right? Yeah, the work, the learning of the lessons, finding the gratitude in it, evolving, making different decisions, learning compassion for yourself and for the other person, maybe even getting to a place of forgiveness. And all these steps you do, they add up. And then there is a point where like, you know, something happens. It could be there's a tipping point or maybe it's just a matter of time. And it feels like there's this glue that puts all together those steps. And you're like, okay, I'm, I'm at peace with this now. I don't need some external thing to give it to me. And unfortunately you can tell someone that, but we can't hand people their aha moments. (laughs) But no, the aha moment I feel like is just knowing that it's not an external feeling closure. It's an internal and you have to like actually go through. There's only one way through, which is through. Yeah. What if you're in the same social group Mm -hmm. as your ex? Like what if you have to see them around in order to get any social interaction? Okay. So in the event where you have to see your ex, what you want to do is you want to limit any communication so that it's not emotionally charged. Some people have, you know, shared pets or children, whatever it is, and you can't just cut them out cold turkey. And so you don't want to go to them for um, any hit of emotion, whether it's to feel calm and you go Mm -hmm. to them for self-soothing. Does that even begin before you get to the event? Like, is it even a part of like, okay, I have to look the best I've ever looked because I know my ex is there. That's kind of an emotional investment before you even get there, right? Yeah, totally. These kind of like breakup body revenge techniques, they don't, (laughs) they don't fucking work because your focus is still about the other person and what they may or may not think. And that's really unhealthy. Again, that causes you to stay in a relationship with your ex. So, uh, you know, ironic that is that it is like trying to look hot for your ex doesn't help you. Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. I say (laughs) shocking, really. (laughs) And so keep those, you know, sometimes we'll contact our ex and we'll actually even create a fight because that still gives us a hit of, you know, chemicals. So you want to avoid that. Now, I would do this if you know you're going to see them at a party and you're feeling mm-hmm. anxiety about it. So I I would have panic attacks every time I ran into my ex. And, yeah, of course. Um, I had a party I was going to go to and I asked my friend to disinvite him and she mm-hmm. refused. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to this thing. No, <laughs> um, I'm not going to let him have power over me. So I did mental rehearsal and this is, you know, pro athletes do this before they, you know, do a race. This is when you, you know, get yourself into meditative state. You imagine the scene happening and, you you know, for me, I was like, okay, I imagine I show up at the party and I make eye contact with him. I just do a slight nod. We acknowledge each other, but I'm feeling confident. I'm calm. I talk to my friends. I play out the entire scenario, Mm -hmm. the ideal way that I want it. Okay. Best case scenario. So no catastrophizing. Yes, exactly. And you just keep practicing that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when I saw my ex at the party, 
the exact same thing happened. I was able to keep my cool. I was totally fine. Afterwards, I was really proud of myself. And what's happening is you're actually, when you're doing the mental rehearsal, you're actually creating those neural pathways first when you're practicing it. But when it comes to the game time, it's not, you're not doing it for the very first time. Oh, so it really has some psychological benefits. Like it really works because you can even use that for this interview to say like, okay, I'm going to imagine it going the best way possible. And then when you actually show up, you act in that way, just subconsciously. I mean, I like, I do it before every interview I do. Yeah. I do it before every talk. And I basically, I close my eyes. I take deep breaths. I imagine it going well, imagine me smiling and like the flow going well, just the feelings of it, how I feel. And it really does. It does help. And there is a reason why pro athletes do it. Like mental rehearsal works. Wow. Okay. I'm totally stealing that. That's we could end the podcast right here. That's so genius. I love that. Um, so this is a question that I argue with my friends about all the time. Do you think that it's easier to break up with someone or to be broken up with? Great question. So first, whether you're the one breaking up or being broken up with, you're still going to deal with a set of emotions yet different. The one breaking up often is feeling feelings of guilt and maybe even some shame. And that could Mm -hmm. be really difficult to go through. The person who's been broken up with is going through um, sadness and feeling the sense of rejection. Now, because rejection is so primal for us, um, you know, back in, back in like, the olden, like hunter gatherer days, uh, if you were rejected from the tribe, that could literally mean life or death. So right. we are programmed to want to belong to, and rejection can be a threat to survival. And so because of that, um, if you are the one being broken up with, that can make the experience a lot harder on you than the person who's doing it. Also, the person who's doing the breaking up it's not brand new to them. They've probably thought about uh-huh. it. It, it might've been in their mind for about a month or so before it actually happens. So they are also having a little bit more time than you than when they break the news. Right. Okay. That's the answer to the question. Cause I guess rejection is a much more uncomfortable emotion than guilt just primarily. Right. Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to say that. Let's yeah. just go with that. Um, so how, how can people, you know, how can someone be a good friend to someone when their friend is going through a breakup? You know, like for me, I like to take the approach of like, I want to ask you about what you feel about sleeping with your ex. I kind of have a feeling about how you feel about that, but I'm the person that if you call me and you say like, I slept with my ex, I'm like, sweet. Like, I don't try to give it any life. Like, I'm not trying to say like, how could you, you know, but it's hard to be a good friend because a, you're annoyed because that's all that your other friend is talking about. You have to have a a lot of patience for to hold space for them. And then it's like, you know, witnessing them do maybe some stupid things as you're accustomed to doing when you're going through such heartbreak. So I love when you talked about, you know, healing modalities, but even as far as, you know, being a friend to someone in a breakup, can you kind of tell us about what the best way to do that is? And I would love you to explain a little bit about tribute.co because I am obsessed after hearing you talk about it. Okay. Yes. So holding space is when you are you allow your friend to express, to cry, to whatever, feel whatever they're feeling without any judgment. Mm. And all you're there is to 
let them know that they're safe, that they are loved, that someone cares about them. And your job is not to give them advice as much as we want to. And it's just to let them go through their emotions in a safe space. And so what do we do when they do something like, you know, sleep with their ex, even though Everyone knows that this is a bad idea. Again, you can't hand them their aha moment, but you can ask them questions so that they can go inward and reflect and come up with their own aha moment. So you can ask This is my aha moment. That's genius. Yeah. So you you look at, okay, so Jade, let's, you want to play this out? Yeah, hell yeah. So let's pretend, Jade, you are the, the person who just slept with her ex five times, okay? And you're totally upset. This is the way that this conversation would go. I would say, so Jade, um, I know you just slept with your ex again, and it seems like you're feeling pretty sad. How are you feeling? Well, you know, like I'm not sleeping with anyone. I'm, I'm being an actress now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in a relationship for seven years, but I'm acting now. Well, you know, I'm not really sleeping with anyone else. And he just came to town. So I figured, you know, I've been dying to have sex with someone. I haven't had sex with someone all of quarantine. And he came back and it just feels familiar and nice when I see him. But then when I leave, I feel like shit again. Okay. So the feeling feels good for like a moment. But then you're saying that afterwards you feel like shit again. And this cycle has repeated now, I guess, a couple of times. Yeah. And I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, to get over one person, you have to get under someone else, but I can't find someone else. So I just keep sleeping with the same guy. Right. And so do you want to get over this person and move forward with your life and create like another relationship, right? Yes, but I'm very comfortable with him. And when we sleep together, it, you know, it mimics the intimacy that we once had and I feel less lonely. Yeah, I totally understand why you would want that sense of familiarity, especially when you're, you know, you haven't met someone else and that's really natural. Um, but I'm hearing you say that you want to move forward. You want a chance at another relationship and you've now repeated this with him five times and you keep feeling like shit. So What do you think you need to do in order to break the cycle? Stop sleeping with him, right? That's the answer. Yeah. And imagine this. So say you do this, say that you stop sleeping with him and you give it, you know, some time, maybe a month or two months. um, And then you, you know, maybe start going on an app and getting, becoming open to meeting other people. Like, what do you think might happen if you go that route? I love it. Yes. I'm like, yes, I need you to be on all my phone calls with my friends. Yes. So you are of the belief that you don't need to get under someone to get over someone else. Uh, no, like you don't need to fall in love with someone. I kind of mean, because I know sleeping with someone else can kind of just make you lonelier because you just miss like the intimacy, you know, but do you need to fall in love again to get over someone? No, I don't think so. I mean, it, it, you know, some people do, right? You can yeah. fall in love and then suddenly you're like, you don't give a shit about your ex anymore. But here's the scary thing. If you are just sleeping with people and dating other people or getting into another relationship as a way to bypass your stages of separation and not feel the pain, it is going to come back it at won't you. work. Like I have now worked with hundreds of people who have done this. And again, I did the same thing, no judgment. And then what has happened? I have yet to have one person come back and say, oh yeah, that totally worked out for me. Right. They either regret, they try to get their ex back, uh, or it comes out into their current relationship. Um, Again, the pain needs 
oxygen to breathe. You can't mm-hmm. just date it away or fuck it away with someone else. Right. Oh my God. Okay. These, you are giving pearls of wisdom. I love it so much. This is something, again, that I talk to all my friends about all the time because I am the person that if I have sex with someone, I am picking out China patterns in the morning. Like I am like, oh my God, we're married, trying my name out with their last name. Like I'm there, you know? And then I have some friends that are like, it's just sex. Like I love having casual sex. And I'm like, what is the difference psychologically between me and them? Are they a liar? You know, are they like, or are they just stronger than I am? Or is it attachment style? So it's definitely not because they're stronger. So there's a few different things. When a woman has sex and when she orgasms, she releases uh, oxytocin. Oxytocin is the bonding chemical. It's also released when a woman gives birth, uh, when she breastfeeds. Now, uh, when a man has an orgasm, he releases what's called vasopressin, which is the equivalent. It's the bonding chemical, but he also gets a surge of testosterone which blunts the effects. And so this is why if you want to look at it on a chemical level, uh, one can say, okay, that's maybe why a, a man might not get as attached after sex as a woman does. Now, I think it really does depend. I'm very much like you. I can have sex with you know, a garbage man and think that this oh, is my soulmate. Yes, um, <laughs> Nothing wrong with garbage men, but okay. <laughs> nope, yes. And so... I think, you know, I have, I, I'm formally anxious attached and I call myself an earn secure. Um, okay. I attach very earn secure quickly. meaning that you've done the work to change your attachment Yeah, style. so I'm now okay. secure. Um, but back then I was anxiously attached. Um, I, you know, the minute I would have sex with someone, I would just like fall in love with them. And so, you know, that combination would make me realize like, I can't be like Samantha from Sex in the City who can no. have you know, sports sex. Like, but I envy I, that, you know, I envy I do that. Too. I, I do. It sucks to be the way that we are. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, like, I think we, you have to, wherever you are, you have to just be really honest with where you're at. And that can also change in terms of life situation or, you know, how, how you're, you know, the types of person that you're dating yeah. with, right? And yeah. you may find that you ha- can have a sexual relationship with someone that you feel really secure with, but you don't see a future with. So that's also possible. But I think that if we're trying to be like, no, I want to be like her or I want to be like him, like that's just not realistic. Right. Oh my God. Okay. I want to talk to you forever. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. So, okay, let's talk about relationships. Now, this is a conversation that I am very excited to have because I've been in a seven-year relationship with the same person, obviously. (laughs) I don't know what that would mean to not be with the same person. But I want to talk to you about fighting in relationships because I know you talk a lot about, like, conflict and resolution. So one quote of yours that I love, I'm going to quote you really quick, but when you said, when you make a demand, you are forcing the person to either submit or rebel. If they submit, they will resent you, and the resentment is a slow poison. And if they rebel, the door closes for negotiation. Can you kind of explain that quote? Yeah. So I think sometimes we fight and we use the same tactics we use when we were children. And we throw a tantrum, uh, we pout, we cry, and they don't work in a partnership when you're an right. adult. <laughs> right. And so one thing that everyone needs to understand is when someone's defense mechanisms 
are triggered. There's a biological response. So that could be that text message you send, like, hey, we need to talk. Uh, that's like the worst message you can send, right? Oh. If I get that, I'm like, oh my gosh, no. like the worst Do n- Never text me again if you text me I that. Know. Like truly worst text to get. Worst ever. text ever. But yes. that's an example of what's going to happen. And I-, I will automatically get into a state right. of defensiveness or survival. And what happens is your body is creating adrenaline and cortisol um, and other chemicals that are getting your body prepared for action. And that action is usually fight or flight. And so if you are having a you know, what I call high six conversation, whether you want more romantic dates or you want them to do the dishes, um, and you start off in a way that I call using boxing gloves, meaning you send that, that shitty text or you accuse them or you're already going in judgmental and they can feel it, then you've already lost the conversation. There is absolutely no way at that point because you're now dealing with someone who is in ready for fight or flight. Their amygdala, the part of the brain that processes fear and threat is on high alert. The prefrontal cortex, which is a part of the brain that's logical and rational, starts to minimize and you are basically working with an animal. Right. <laughs> and so like, it doesn't matter what's said at that point. And so think about when you're about to have these conversations or, you know, a fight or you want something, are you wearing boxing gloves or are you going in with a handshake? And a handshake is not being accusatory. So instead of saying, you do this, you say, I feel, I feel sad when I don't hear back from you the entire day. Right. And even the timing of it is boxing gloves or handshake. Like my thing is like, I would love to talk about relationship topics like late at night when my boyfriend is like exhausted from the day and wants to sleep. Me too. Why is that my favorite time to bring something (laughs) up? Favorite time. Like deep conversations about our relationship. And I've now learned like, no, 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 that's boxing gloves. It's actually not being considerate of the timing for such a conversation to take place. And so from the tone of your voice to the language that you're using to, you know, the time that you're having it, Mm -hmm. learning how to be skilled with that, that takes practice. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. Right. So I know in the quote that I just read, you said you kind of are choosing between resentment or submission, right? What are the other avenues. And I think what you said is so smart because you're right. Resentment is a slow poison. Like it just will make you rot from the inside out kind of. And submission is, you know, close the door for negotiation. But what are the other, you know, as someone that loves to be right, you know, and someone that wants her partner to submit to whatever I think is right. What are the other avenues? Yeah. So I would say it's not that you cannot be right in your head. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Which I always am. It is focusing on the bigger picture, which is the values. And so say you want um, more flowers. Is it really about more flowers or is there a value of connection that is really important to you? And so instead of being like, I want you to get me more flowers. Every Friday, I want fucking roses. And if you don't, like forget date night, right? That is 
not going to go over well, right? They're either going to be intimidated, they're going to feel controlled, and it's just not going to give you the results that you want. Instead, you can have a conversation of saying, you know, I know we both really value connection and romance. And we both feel connected in really different ways. And one way that I feel really loved is just these small gestures that I know you're thinking about me, whether it's like a sweet text or or flowers, like that makes me so happy. But what if the person says, whenever I bring flowers, you don't even react, you don't care. Okay. And so that's, that's when it's really not about the flowers, right? You are asking for something and they give you like, it's working on the symptom and then they do it and you're still not pleased because you're not actually getting to the bigger picture. And so if someone has an experience where whatever they're doing, isn't helping you acknowledge their experience. Again, what we played earlier, you always want to validate like, Hey, I know that must be confusing. And yeah, you're right. The last time you brought flowers, I like was busy, you know, on my podcast and that must've felt pretty shitty. I'm sorry about that. Um, I think it's not really about roses. I think it's really about connection and, and quality time, whatever it is. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So one more question just about fighting. Yeah. What, how, what's, what are some de-escalation tactics you can use? Because like in my relationship, like we have different ways of fighting and it's purely our childhood. Like it's yeah. purely the way that our parents taught us to fight and whatever. And what are some ways where you can, you know, it's a kind of like love languages, but like arguing languages, how can you get on the same playing field? Such a great question. So first identify what is your go-to reaction when it comes to conflict? Um, there's likely going to be a difference. So one's probably going to want space and time to process. And the other one wants to just connect right away and repair and get into harmony as quickly as possible. Now, neither way is right or wrong, but you need to respect each other's different styles. And so that might be an agreement you make before you get into a fight. You don't try to figure this stuff out when you're in the fight. This is uh, that's when you're in a non-activated state. You have yes. the conversation of how are we going to fight? And okay. so you could say, okay, I need space. I need at least one hour. And that's probably really true because again, your, um, your survival instincts are going up. You're flooded with cortisol and stress hem- chemicals. And so you actually need some time to allow those stress chemicals to metabolize in your body. But if you're having a conversation in that, you're just like in it. You're like the cortisol is running and you're not going to have a harmonious conversation. And so for your partner who might need more connection, wants to talk about it right away, you would say like, I understand you want to connect right away, but let's agree that we separate for one hour and we know there's there's an expiry date, right? It's not going to, I'll be gone for a week and you don't know when you'll hear from me. Uh Um, This is agreed upon time and we'll come back and we'll have a conversation then and see if we're, you know, back in a state where we're talking like two functional adults, not to hurt children. Now there may be the instance where you're so revved up that you cannot continue the conversation. And that is when you have to cut your losses. You can agree and say like, if we get into a place where we're talking in circles, one of us has to like, you know, do the code, right? Maybe it's, you say the word elephant and you agree at that time, we separate for an hour and you don't keep doing it or you write it out or you journal, whatever it is. So you that you can come live in my house? <laughs> I'll live in your house for a week. Yeah, be on your shoulders. Oh my God. All of my problems would be solved. So, you know, back to talking about, you know, how we choose the partners that we're in a relationship with. 
Um, you know, I know we talked about kind of like we a lot of people find people that will hurt them in the same way that their parents did or that their childhood did. So if they have a neglectful parent, you know, maybe they'll look for a neglectful partner. But what about if you so maybe you can you can explain a little bit about that. But I'm more curious about what if you choose the opposite? Is that equally as detrimental or is that actually a sign of healing? Um, so choosing the complete opposite is also a common response to childhood trauma. And look, we've all got trauma. There's big trauma, big T oh, yeah. or little T, right? Oh, yeah. It could be not being picked at the soccer team that gives you that traumatic belief that you're not, you don't belong. And Absolutely. so some do go the other opposite. So they might have had a partner, uh, a parent who was, uh, really controlling and then they totally just want to be with someone who's completely the opposite. And now again, if it serves you great, but if you're doing it out of a place of wounding and defensiveness and it's not helping you, then you want to see how we can get more into the middle. Um, there's some people who get hurt from their relationships and then they go to the other side of the pendulum and they completely close their heart. So again, we want to make room for the gray area for nuance, because when you're stuck in extreme, that's usually an indication that it's coming from a place of wounding. Interesting. Wow. So yeah. So even if you choose the opposite, you have to make sure that you're choosing the opposite in an authentic way that like you're attracted to the opposite. You're not just choosing it out of spite. Right. Yeah. I think the intention of where it's coming from is important in everything that we do. Okay. So what are some of the attributes of a healthy relationship in your eyes? So I think it's important that we look at a successful relationship for it to have a potential to be a thriving partnership. There needs to be a combination of three things. That's chemistry, uh, timing, and compatibility of values. And the values is the glue that holds it all together in the ups and the downs. In the, you know, year 10, when you're like, oh, I don't want to have sex with you anymore. Like, oh, you're so annoying. It's the values that glues you together that helps you work through the issues versus just skipping. Um, and so I think too often the mistake people make is they put too much priority on chemistry, especially if your chemistry compass is broken, then you're putting priority on chemistry and that's chemistry that you feel 10 out of 10 with this person is actually should be a red light, not a green light, but you mm. keep mistaking it for a green light. Okay. Um, and so for those people really getting clear on your values and seeing if these potential partners match and align in your values is really important. Another thing is you don't want to date someone who is a replica of you. And this is also another problem. So people are like, oh, no, no, no. Like I am really extroverted. So I want someone who can go into a room and light it up. And I don't want to date someone who's shy, introverted. Right? Yes. So here we also need polarity. Polarity is what causes us to feel that that sexual attraction to someone. So if you, if you date someone who is exactly like you, you might be totally compatible because you both like yoga and I don't know, hosting parties and whatever it is, but you might feel that that chemistry, that polarity isn't there, or you might date someone and then you might try to change them to become like you. And they're like, Oh, fuck, this is boring. Like, I don't want to have sex with you anymore. So <laughs> you don't want the same person, but you want values that are aligned. Right. Oh my God. You are blowing my mind. You are blowing my mind. So what makes a viable romantic partner? You know, obviously someone that has the same values as you, but that's not a duplicate of you, but what are some 
green flags, I guess. Yeah. So I think let's look at chemistry, right? You cannot fake chemistry. And there's a part about chemistry that we just can't explain. There's a combination of pheromones from DNA to your, your historical love maps that might cause you to feel, you know, something with this person, but feel complete disgust with the other person. If you feel disgust with someone, um, it's very, very hard for that to ever turn into a, a romantic spark. Right. I've never seen it happen. It's different if you've been together for like, you know, a, a period of time and you get disgusted because they put their socks on. Very different <laughs> right. from, But upon you know, initial meeting, you should exactly. be. Yeah. Okay. And it's not because there's something wrong with them. There's just stuff you cannot explain. Okay. Now, with chemistry, too often we think that, oh, you only have chemistry when you see them and you're like sexually like want to rip off their clothes. This is not the case. And um, that's the same thing as like you don't believe in when you see them, you'll know. You don't believe in that either, oh, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. uh, that is totally like fed to you from fairy tales and movies. Yes. And it's not true. Okay. It caused, <laughs> has caused an entire society that's rooted in fantasy and not reality. And that is a cause of a lot of our heartache. Okay. I digress. But <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so chemistry there there's chemistry that you have with your friends with romantic right. partners our chemistry on this podcast mm-hmm. and so there's different there's different types of chemistry but your brain might not cognitively process something as romantic chemistry right away so when you go on a date with someone all you want to ask yourself is am i having fun do i want to see this person again does this energize me or is it depleting me? That's it. If you're like, yeah, I'm having fun. This gives me some energy. I want to see them again. There is chemistry. Okay. And it might take a few dates, getting to know them a little bit, seeing how their values are, seeing, you know, how they show up for that to finally register like, oh, wait, that's romantic chemistry. Um, okay. So I say this because too often we dismiss people right away because we don't have that. I looked across the room and I want to rip off your clothes because, you know, yes. Romeo and Juliet did it. Yeah. No, like I, with my boyfriend, I mean, I was also 19. So like, who knows what hormonally was going on. But when I saw him, I was like, zoom. Like it, I really did have that moment where like the world stopped and I like, was looking at him. He did not have that moment. Mm. He did he did not have that same moment. So it took him like two years to like realize that to come to the same conclusion that I had already come to. But yeah, so I feel like, you know, I'm I kind of agree with you. Like it's you can't just hold yourself to that standard of like everything stops and whatever, because it's like things can evolve, right? Like your feelings for someone can evolve, but people change, right? Like that's basically and but you don't agree with you don't believe in soulmates either. Uh, I don't believe in soulmates in the traditional sense where you have one soulmate and that's your person. Okay. I believe that we are, we are souls that reincarnate into different forms and, you know, we have many soulmates from our friends to romantic partners. Um, but I don't believe that there's just this, the one One for you. No. Yeah. Because then if you, God forbid you break up, you're like, oh, I'm done. Sweet. You know, I'm going to stop living because like that was my one person for me. Yeah. And they've actually done research to like, uh, look at what is the actual chance of reach reading, meeting your soulmate. And you have uh, a better chance of winning the Powerball lottery than meeting your soulmate. If you actually do the numbers. Don't say that. Oh God, that's terrible. That's terrible. Yeah. That, but that's not to say that your chances of finding love are not the same as. Yeah, totally not. But it's that idea that there's that one person they've done the mathematics and it's doesn't look good. (laughs) Okay. I 
love that because that's going to set a lot of people free. <gasps> so let's talk about sex in long-term relationships. So, you know, a little earlier you were saying, like, if you're year 10 and you're like, oh, God, your socks are on the floor. You know, like, I think sex, at least in my relationship, even has evolved so much. What are some ways that you've seen work, like, to, you know, reinvigorate your sex life or to keep that spark, I hate when people say that, alive? Yeah, so... You know, in the beginning of a relationship, the spark are those chemicals on overdrive. Now, uh, research shows that those chemicals uh, can only really last between 12 months to uh, 24 months. So one to two years. Okay. Um, you can't possibly live your life on this high like state of dopamine and when it rose be so nice glasses. if we could. <laughs> <laughs> right? You, you just can't. You're like, basically, you're on yeah. drugs. Um, and so that momentum in the beginning can make it really easy. Like you don't have to make an effort to feel turned on. It's more spontaneous desire. But what happens is once you reach the next stage of the relationship, so it goes from um, romantic love to companionate love. These are different chemicals that start to take the stage. It's no There's longer- more oxytocin. Exactly. Right? Okay. So it's no longer dopamine driven. It's more of the bonding chemicals. The, the, they're called the here and now chemicals. They're chemicals that make you appreciate what you have and be in the present moment. Okay. And so at this stage, you are going to need to put in effort because you can't just rely on the love drugs anymore. This doesn't mean- Wait, something... time out. I'm like, I got to ask you though. Does that mean, just sorry to interrupt you, but does that mean that we will never, like if you're in a long-term relationship, like if I'm in this relationship for the rest of my life, will I ever get that dopamine hit back? Yes, you can. So there's okay. things that you can do. Um, but I do want to just reiterate, like once you, you kind of pass the love drugs phase, it's no longer just like, oh, just like leave it up to mother nature. That's not on your side anymore. The momentum right. part that's to help you get together isn't yeah. there. Like mother nature needs a break. Mother nature needs okay. to go over there. Okay? okay. So at that point, you can't just rely on spontaneous desire. And this is where people don't understand. They're like, there's something wrong in my relationship. Why, you know, before I used to have sex four times a day, he would just look at me and I'd be turned on. And now, you know, like I need to be put in the mood and like all yeah. these things. This is actually actually natural. Okay. And so you might not have as much spontaneous desire where just a look makes you wet, but there needs to be kind of like a slow building of that okay. desire. It might be introducing fantasy, introducing toys. Novelty is what keeps things fresh. A sense of mystery. I actually do this thing called independent Thursdays with my partner, where especially during quarantine, we've been around each other every single day. Yes. And Desire needs air to breathe. It needs space. But if you're with each other 24 hours a day, there's no space. There's no mystery. And so we have a day where the entire day we do our own thing. We eat separately. We try to keep conversation to a minimum. And then the next day we come back together and we have date night. And then we actually have questions to ask each other. Like, hey, what happened? Oh my gosh, this did. And you come back together intentionally. So we do these things. We actually intentionally create some space so uh -huh. that we can come back together. But you're going to need to figure out different things that work for you. And you're, you're going to have to experiment a little bit. And that's a completely natural part when you're in the companionate love stage of a relationship. Wow. Even as you're saying, just do you call them independent Thursdays? 
Yeah, independently. Like that that just shows me how anxious attached I am because I'm like, oh God, I'd be without him for a day. Like that would be crazy. And that's probably not a healthy way to feel. So Jay, that's really helpful because I, so I used to have anxious attachment and be super codependent. Yeah. And my partner is definitely like, he's a little bit more avoidant, needs a lot of full personal space. So mm-hmm. having a set day on Thursdays, I don't ever take it personally. We both know what's going to happen. He can have the space that he needs to listen to podcasts and do all the shit that I don't want to do. And I know like, that's my time to like also practice not being so codependent. And you know that there's a time limit. So exactly. So I feel safe. And then the more we do it, the more safe I feel and the less codependent I become. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. That's fucking brilliant. Okay. Let's get into dating. So you've probably seen this rhetoric on Instagram like I have, but you know what? When people say, if it's not a fuck yes, it's a no. Do you agree with that? Okay. So Mark Manson wrote this book, right? Yeah. And it's about fuck yes, fuck no. And I think that's how it caught on, on okay. everyone's fucking social media. Yeah. I was wondering where that originated. No, this fuck yes idea is fucking you up because mm. you know what's fuck yes? Fuck yes is when you have maybe love addiction or anxious attachment style or attractions of deprivation where you choose people who can wound you in a very similar way and you meet someone, you're like, oh my God, yes, fuck yes, fuck yes. That intensity is not love. And so this whole idea of fuck yes in the beginning, it's not realistic. And I think it's a very dangerous thing because you don't know someone until you actually get to know them through time, through experiences, through seeing how they deal with conflict. The fuck yes thing is all about chemistry. And if you have a broken chemistry compass, the people you're saying fuck yes to are probably people who are going to wound you in a very similar way to how you've been wounded in the past. I have had fuck yes soulmates that I thought, oh my God, fuck yeah, this is the Mm -hmm. one. Probably a hundred times. I will let you know None of those worked out. <laughs> wow. So how do you feel about that going the other way, though? Like, do you think that the person that you're thinking about being in a relationship with, does it have to be a fuck yes for them? Do you agree that you won't be confused if the person wants to be with you? Because it will be like a, maybe not a fuck yes, because that's like more, shows more intense and different emotions, but you will know if they're interested in you. So right? yes, I think that when you are in a relationship with someone, <laughs> hopefully they're like, oh, fuck yes. Like my girl, my guy, like whatever it is, they're a hundred percent, they're invested in you. That's Mm -hmm. your partner. That's your rock, right? But even when you're just dating them. I think that you need to- Or is it the same? Well, I think it depends, right? Like I think the very beginning stage, like the, you know, first few dates. Yeah. You could have like, I'm excited, but if you're like, fuck yes, this is my person- I don't think that's actually healthy. Okay, red flag. Okay. That's a red flag. If you have a history of like a broken chemistry compass, I think that if you are in a relationship or if you're kind of assessing like, is this person interested in building the connection? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. You're not like psychoanalyzing their text messages and it's not so fueled by anxiety. They're not hot and cold and you're confused. And so it's like not the game, the game isn't there. Yeah. That, that kind of like, you're not drawn to them because they're just unpredictable. Okay. So I feel like the game is so 
common, you know, like waiting. Someone texts me and then I wait, like they took four hours to respond. So I'll take eight hours to respond. Is there innocent playing of the game at first or is it all just, does that mean that you guys aren't meant to be if there's any sort of back and forth like that? You know, I think that we play games and we alter our behavior to appear a certain way. Um, and that's usually to uh, to kind of cover up something that's going on inside. When you're actually confident, empowered, you're, you know, not codependent, um, and someone doesn't text you back right away, you're not, actually not like, oh my God, is it four hours and 25 minutes? You're just not <laughs> yes. doing that. Yeah. You're like, all right, I'm fucking awesome. Cool. I'm like going to do my thing. I'm going to give you two different scenarios. One is ghosting, but the other one I'll do first. So let's say you're, you're dating someone, right? And you guys have been kind of, it's like friends with benefits-ish. And they give you everything that you get out of a relationship. Like when you're together, you know, you feel like intimate, they invite you. They don't invite you to the wedding, but they invite you to pick out their outfit or, you know what I mean, or yeah. something to the wedding. So, they, But they're giving you everything but that commitment. What does that mean? Here's the cold, hard truth. <laughs> Let's give it to me, please. When someone's doing that in the very beginning because they're not sure, yeah, it takes time to know like, oh, do I really want to invest in this person and and not you know, have sex with other people. And so that takes time. That's totally normal. But if this has been going on for a year or two, five years, reality check is that they're not going to commit to you. If they're not committing to you in the year one, when you're on love drugs and mm -hmm. it feels so amazing, True. what makes you think they're going to commit to you in year five when the love drugs are gone? True. Yes. So why do we stay around? Because we just take like, why, why do some people just settle for breadcrumbs in that way? Because I think it, it, there's a few things. One is there's hope. Mm -hmm. uh, even though sometimes a person has said like, Hey, I don't want a serious relationship with you. There's a hope of like, Oh, serious relationship right now. Huh? But wait, or, wait until you see how awesome I am. <laughs> right, I'm going to convince you to love me. Yeah. How useful I am and how great your life is with me in it. And so you stick around. And there's this kind of idea of hope that you have, and that hope is really messing you up. And, you know, it's sometimes people are like, well, this is better than being alone. So I'll just take this. But what's happening is that person is taking up space in your heart and your mind, and you don't have room for new love energy to come in. Right. So what's the intermittent reinforcement idea? What's that whole yeah. concept about? So people get hooked into these hot and cold dynamics, okay. uh, situationships, right? They're not really in a relationship. They don't really know. It can even happen after a breakup where someone comes in and out of your life. They might even love bomb you. So one day they show up, they take you for dinner. You're like the most important person in the world. And then they're gone for two weeks. Um, and then they just like check your IG stories and they give you a little heart emoticon. Oh my God. I think you're describing every single person's relationship <laughs> right now. And so for you on the receiving end, you're like, oh my gosh, like you're just waiting for that next hit to come. And what happens is intermittent reinforcement is when the rewards are unpredictable, when you don't know when they're going to come, you actually get a bigger hit of dopamine when you actually get it. And it keeps you hooked. It is, um, you know, the most profitable part of a casino is the slot machines. And this is really 
the same thing happening to you. You don't know when the reward is going to come. So you're pressing the lever. You're doing the same thing. Sometimes you get the reward. Sometimes you don't. And it's the actual process that gets you hooked, not because this person's so amazing. Right. So it's not the reward that gives you the dopamine. It's the anticipation of the reward that gives you the dopamine. Exactly. And not knowing when it's going to come. And then when you get it here and there, you get this intensity and that makes you, um, then it's gone, right? It's either gone because they disappear or maybe they even pair it up with abuse. Yeah. Um, and so there's this kind of intense up and down, up and down, and then you get really hooked on that cycle. Oh my God. I can't wait till my next friend asked me dating advice. I'm going to sound like a genius. <laughs> yes. Thanks to you. Okay. So tell me about ghosting. Being ghosted sucks. Yeah. And something to understand is it really isn't about you. People ghost because that is their way of dealing with conflict or uncomfortable emotions. And often this is learned in childhood. So they might've learned at a young age that it wasn't okay to feel their emotions. It wasn't okay to have conflict in the household. And so they reacted by, you know, going into their room and slamming the door and repeated over time, they learn that, you know, dealing with uncomfortable emotions, with guilt, uh, with shame is unsafe. And so their way of dealing with it is by not dealing with it. And unfortunately you are, you know, have to face the consequences of it. So understanding like why someone does that and try to imagine them as a hurt child, like, oh, wow, shit, you probably learned this at age five. Wow. That's empowering to be like, you know what I mean? To just say to that, to say to yourself, like, oh, that's a character flaw or like, that's a, that's trauma or damage from childhood. And it's not about you. Yeah. And you want to probably know that sooner versus later, because, Hey, how about when you're married and you have kids and shit hits a fan Yeah, and this person at that point realizes I can't deal with conflict and they fucking peace out. I think it's much better to get ghosted on date three than ghosted in fucking year three. Yes. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. That's true. Cause they, what, what are they just going to become more emotionally capable of handling conflict? Like over time? No, those patterns are already ingrained in them. Yeah. Our patterns follow us wherever we go, unless we do the work to change them. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. Can you explain high safety, medium safety, and low safety relationships and how those can rewire your neuropathways? Yeah. So, so often, especially during the pandemic, people are like, well, how do I date again? I want to like meet someone. And I, I really encourage them to not just focus on romantic partners, but look at their entire village because the people that we are exposed to the most, they are wiring our brains. They are creating those neural pathways for connection and trust. And if you are around high safety, meaning uh, you don't feel judged, you feel safe, you feel seen, you can be yourself, that helps you create, you know, those neural pathways for trust. Um, but if the people you're surrounded with, and this could be your coworkers, your roommate, the people you're exposed to the most, those are low safety relationships, meaning you feel criticized. You never know if they're going to be around. They judge you. Those are, you know, you're constantly, um, kind of seeing if like your, 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 your survival is at threat. You're not building those neural pathways. So it's important to look at your entire group of people you're exposed to, increase your exposure to high safety, decrease your exposure to low safety, and the medium safety people, this might be a great opportunity to start renegotiating those dynamics so that 
you can now relate on a different, you know, a different way. Wow. So yeah, so reevaluating all your relationships and taking stock of who is a high safety and a low safety. And you don't necessarily have to get the low safety out of your life, but is the goal to make every relationship high safety? Because that's kind of unattainable, right? No, I mean, the goal is to have most of the people you're surrounded with to be high safety. Because goal, that means like you can be more yourself also, and right? It, it actually, it helps you with your nervous system, your vagus nerve. Um, it, it will shift the way that you do the world. When okay. you feel that you have a secure base, um, and that's not just in your romantic partners, it's in your, your, your little village, yes. you are able to go into the world, create, take risks. But when you don't, that kind of ability to take risks, to go in the world, to be creative, that kind of gets blunted. And so, and then, you know, the next step is, you know, the things that trigger us is learning how to have those conversations about boundaries, learning to not let people judge you and criticize you and take advantage of you. And yeah, if people are breaching your boundaries and it's making you feel like you are the worst part of yourself, then you have to make a decision and say like, I might need to either take space from this relationship or cut them out. Mm, Wow. Okay. That's a great place for us to take another break. We will be right back. So that was a great segue for us to go into anxiety. Can you explain shaking? Because I, you changed my life with this, with this idea, concept, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So when you feel anxiety or anger, this an intense emotion, what's happening is your body again. It's being flooded with cortisol and adrenaline, and um, your body is sensing that you are going to be attacked. So it's preparing you to do something about it. But that could be, you know, the threat could be, you know, a nasty email or you saw your ex's photo on Instagram, right? It's not an actual threat. Right. And so if it's not an actual threat, you have all these stress chemicals in your body. And so what you want to do is set a timer for two minutes and you shake your body head to toe. This will you allow, shake it out. yeah, you shake it out. You allow those stress hormones to kind of move through your body and metabolize them. Otherwise they kind of get stuck. I mean, I did this the other day. Like I was attacked by a crow and I'm like, fuck this. I'm shaking <laughs> worst it out. Fear. I know I look crazy right now, but I'm not allowing this cortisol to be stuck in my body. And my boyfriend's yeah. like, yep, go, go do your thing. Go All shake right. it out. I'll well, because animals, here. animals shake, right? Yes. Like it helps your nervous system to do so, right? Like dogs, not only when they're wet, but just like when they're rebounding from an experience, they'll shake, right? Yeah, yeah for sure. So it's in nature. We just don't do it. We don't because, you know, for human beings, we're like, oh my God, we're going to look so stupid. But yeah, yeah, there's a reason why animals do it. It's it's to get rid of those stress chemicals. That kind of makes me think of also the amount of time, if you're tempted to text your ex, didn't you say that it's like 20 to 30 minutes for intensity of a craving to subside? Yes. Right? So like you should just distract yourself for 20 to 30 minutes and like theoretically the craving will subside? It will start that, yeah, that intensity. So in the beginning when you have that craving of like, oh my gosh, like I want to contact my ex or I want to check their social media, the intensity is really high. And that here's where the problem is because people think, no, 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 this discomfort, it's never going to go away. Mm-hmm. I'm stuck with it. But the reality is it actually will. And in 20 to 30 minutes, that intensity will start to go down, 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 down. So if you can do something, and especially it's great if you can move your body, 
Um, like exercise, you know, put on Beyonce, whatever it is, go for a walk with your friend. Um, that will help you kind of go through that kind of initial period when that craving is at its highest peak. Wow. Okay. So then back to anxiety, you know, we talked about shaking and then there's the three, five, seven breath, right? So those are kind of for like two different kinds of anxiety. Like one is for like maybe performance or like just shaking off like a scare fight or flight experience or, but the breathing is more about like, is that what you should do? Like when I'm sitting in bed at night and I feel myself starting to go towards a shame spiral, like what is the best way to combat that kind of anxiety attack? Yeah. Getting back into your breath is important. So I would say you can pair it. So if you're feeling like, oh my gosh, something happened and you're feeling anxiety, I would do a state change first to okay. get out the chemicals. And then you want to do deep breathing. And I ha- I talk about the three, five, seven breath. If you can't remember, just make your exhale longer than your inhale that will calm your nervous system down. And so you want to get back to breath because when we start to panic, we start to make our breath really shallow. (gasps) We do that. Right. And that causes that anxiety to go bigger and bigger and bigger. But when you calm it down and you control your breath, you, you start to just calm your nervous system down. Wow. Okay. So breathing and shaking, are there any other helpful tools that you use for anxiety? Because I feel like you're an anxiety wizard. I've never met someone so like <laughs> that has so many tips and tricks. Yeah, because anxiety is a huge, uh, it's a huge feeling that comes up, especially oh, yeah. when it comes to breakups and dating. Yeah. I would say another thing that could be helpful is doing flow state writing. So put on a timer for 10 minutes or 15 minutes okay. and you just put your pen to paper and you do not lift your pen. And so you can even start with the truth is and just go and whatever comes out you just let it come out even if it doesn't make sense you could be like unicorns pink berries okay why did my dad do that oh you just keep going (laughs) and what that does is it's almost like debugging your subconscious it allows all that stuff that's floating around to come out on paper and it allows you to release so that's a really helpful way of processing emotion as well Amazing. Okay. What is Tribute? Can you just tell the audience yeah. for a second? So Tribute's a company, Tribute.co is a company. My friend Andrew Horn created it actually. And they create video montages um, for other birthdays. And I mm-hmm. tell people to throw themselves a breakup party because yes. people look at breakups as like this totally sad, terrible thing. But I get excited for people when they have a breakup because I know that they are now writing their next chapter. But I also know that after breakup, you're feeling isolated. You're not feeling those love chemicals. So why not get your friends to, you know, create this video montage and they can, you know, just do one minute and say, this is what I love about you the most. Um, You submit it to tribute, they put it together. And then your friend, when they're in a time of need, when they're going through withdrawal, they can just watch this love bomb video of all the reasons why people love you and what they see about you. And that can make you feel amazing. Yes. that I'm obsessed with tribute.com now. Like ever since I heard about it through you, I was like, oh my God, it's genius. Cause it's like when you're not getting that oxytocin or like those, you know, love hormones, like you said, like just to have that, you know, boost of confidence from like all the people that love you. That's what I'm going to, that's going to be my breakup gift of choice from now on. So can you kind of tell everyone where to find you and what's your Instagram handle? What are all the things that you've got going on? 
Yeah. So um, my website's renewbreakupbootcamp.com and my Instagram's at Miss Amy Chan. Yes. Um, I'm, you know, running boot camps again. So that's super exciting. And I have workshops on love and dating and sex. Um, and my book, Breakup Bootcamp, The Science of Rewire yes. Your Heart is available on Amazon and all the I just stores. started it. I'm so excited. It's so yes. good. It's, it's incredible. Thank you so much for answering all these questions. Like you are a dream. This was so fun. And I yes. feel like I just learned, I feel like I, I just learned so much. So Yay. thank you. Okay. Just saying, and call me a sociopath or whatever you want, but I find great comfort in knowing that sometimes when someone ghosts you, it might just mean that they have issues with conflict and maybe even some residual childhood trauma that makes them afraid to communicate. I'm going to use that every time my friends come crying to me about a guy not responding to them. Just saying. And also, is it fucked up that one of the major takeaways I had from this episode is that I need to do that shaking thing more? Shaking to get rid of anxiety really blew my fucking mind. So I'm going to try that and see how it goes. I hope you loved this conversation as much as I did. And I'm dying, dying, dying to text you guys about it because there was a lot to unpack. Hit me with your worst dating stories, your biggest mistakes in a relationship, your attachment style, your latest heartbreak, or anything you learned from this episode, and we can have a little powwow and celebrate how evolved and mature we all are after listening to Amy. Okay, that's it from me. I'm off to go shake my body, you know, get rid of some of this anxiety, or just, you know, stay in fetal position until this move is over. Either way, I'll see you guys back here next week. Bye.